Again, good morning to all of you. It's really good to see you just today. Um, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to John 9, and what I'm going to ask is if you just leave your Bibles open, because we're going to be working through uh, that chapter, really from the first verse uh, toward the end. And I'm not going to be reading the whole chapter to you, I'll be dealing with the chapter and pointing out sections of the chapter as we go through the message. That's why I'd like to invite you to have your Bibles open. This is the second time we've looked at this passage, three weeks ago before Palm Sunday. Um, I preached a sermon on the same text, but there's just, there's just so much here. <laughs> so much here. I'm going to ask you if you would uh, join with me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you now calling you our Father, believing that and knowing that you're the Father of good gifts. You give good gifts to your children. Uh, if we ask for a fish, you won't give us a stone. So now we ask you for your Holy Spirit and your word together so that uh, our hearts will be soft, pliable, receptive to you and your truth and the truth about Christ. I ask you to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as we go through this chapter today, the story of the healing of the man born blind from birth and all that happened and sort of the aftermath of that, um, I just want to underscore one thing. I want to underscore with you today just the remarkable change, the remarkable change that this man went through, the remarkable transformation spiritually that took place in his life and how that transformation occurred. And then uh, I'll be drawing some clear points, I think, of application for us uh, as, we, as we do that. So let's look at this story again through some fresh eyes this morning, the Sunday after Easter. The first seven verses recount the healing itself, how Jesus healed this blind beggar. Uh, he he uh, made mud with spit, and then he applied that mud to the eyes of the beggar, and then he sent him to wash his eyes, wash his face in the pool of Siloam. And, uh, and when he did, he, afterward he could see. He was no longer blind. But in all this, I'm sure that the man was obviously overwhelmed, but, uh, but in all of this, we hear nothing from him. Nothing from him. Then you go to the next section, which is verses 8 through 12. Uh, and his neighbors and those who had seen him begging, uh, they began to question him. Uh, is, is he really the man who had been blind? Is he really who they think that he is? And for the first time, uh, he speaks. In fact, he has to say this again and again as they're debating this. He says, I am the man. I, I am the man. And then they ask him the question, well, then if you're the man, if you're the man who's been born blind, begging, we've seen this for years and years, then how were your eyes opened? And he says, the man called Jesus made mud. They ask him, well, 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 where is he? And the man said, I don't know. These were the first words he spoke about Jesus. Just the facts. But then we come to the third section of the chapter, verses 13 through 17, where the neighbors and people who had known this, this fellow when he was blind, they bring him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees break out into a quarrel with each other over, over Jesus. 
uh, there are sort of two sides. Uh, the one side says this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. And they say that because he'd healed this man on the Sabbath. And they latched on to that uh, hangnail, as it were, of an excuse for calling him a sinner because they hated him. They were already opposed to him. But then there were others among the Pharisees who had some matter of conscience in, in this. And they said, well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? So there's one side say, well, he's a sinner. He, he, he did something on the Sabbath. He worked on the Sabbath. And the other side, yeah, but look what he did. He did a miracle. I mean, how could he be a sinner if he did a sign like that? And then they turn to the blind man and they place him into the center of their dispute. And they say to him, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And I hope you understand the sense of that. <laughs> They must have been glaring at him, the blind man, or now the man who could, could, could see. I mean, in essence, they were saying, you know, what do you say since you're the cause of this problem? Since you're the reason we're having this debate? Since you're ruining our day? Since we had Jesus all buttoned up as a sinner and we were working to denounce him and even to kill him? What do you say? You're the problem. So he's been made the center of this, of this conflict. He's under pressure from both both factions and of course the politically smart thing to do would have been for him to side with the Jesus is a sinner majority because clearly that was the majority here as the passage plays out that becomes very clear if you're smart you know he would side with the Jesus is the sinner majority but he doesn't in fact he doesn't really side with the other group either because he goes beyond what the other group had said He says, this is his comment of Jesus. He says, he is a prophet. Wow, what a change. Pressure was having an amazing effect on him. It was making him think harder about who Jesus was. Uh, uh, Does this challenge? I mean, the question is, does does this threat then serve to sharpen his understanding, make him probe more, reflect more, think more deeply? And I think the answer, obviously, is yes, it does. And then in verses 18 through 23, the Pharisees decide the miracle must not have happened. That's the official line. It could not have happened. So now they're out to prove that. So they go to, they go to the man's parents. And they say to him, is this your son, verse 19, is this your son who you say was born, by, born blind? You hear that? Who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, the parents acknowledge that he's their son, but they are too frightened. They're just too intimidated to ascribe his healing to a miracle by Jesus. Because as the text goes on to point out, they might be put out of the synagogue. And to be put out of the synagogue, I guess we could say it's like excommunication, but just it's a big word. I think to be put out of the synagogue means cut off from friends, cut off from family, shamed and rejected by the community, and disapproved of in the name of God. In the name of God, we disapprove of you. In the name of God, we disavow you. And that it terrified them. So instead, they turn this question 
that was asked of them back onto their son. They deflect the attention off themselves. Well, maybe, you know, who can blame them? But they deflect the attention off of themselves on back to him. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 21. The parents. You understand what's happening here? These parents are only avoiding the prospect of this complete rejection by placing the prospect of that rejection on their son. Thanks, mom and dad. And now would he follow his parents' example? Now what would the son do? Would he, this man who had so known humiliation and the isolation of living for so long as a blind beggar, would he now be willing to return to that status of humiliation and isolation and disrespect for the sake of what he knew at that point was true about Jesus? Brings us to verses 24 to 34. Because now the Pharisees return to the man. And they're turning up the screws. There's no pretense anymore. They're sort of gathering facts and figuring out whether a miracle has occurred. They've decided no miracle has occurred. So they say to the man, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, in other words, in the name of God, agree with us. In the name of God, Confess that he is a, this Jesus is a, is a sinner. Agree with us. Give glory to God. Or else. You say, well, or, or else what? Or else be regarded as a blasphemer for having said that Jesus is from God. Being put out of the synagogue. All the shame and humiliation that comes. So give glory to God. How hypocritical is that? It's blasphemous. That's blasphemous. Give glory to God. Say that Jesus is a sinner. And now, amazingly, amazingly, this man who was born blind, who had spent his life, at least out of childhood, maybe in childhood, sitting in a town square along a street, blind and begging for so many years, now this this man who is, is nothing, in the sight of the world, speaks to the most powerful, most well-educated, the most righteous, if you understand my sense of that word, men in his society, in his world. And amazingly, he takes his stand. He drives a stake in the ground. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. John Piper has observed in relation to this very passage, I want to point it out to you, that the, the power of personal testimony over a bad argument is very, very great. Now the power of a personal testimony, this is what I saw, this is what I, I felt, this is what I believe over against hard evidence, that's not great. The power of a personal testimony over against a good argument may not be very strong, 
if you counter a good argument. But the power of a personal testimony over against a bad argument is very great. And I want to say to you this morning, understand that every argument against Christ as the Lord and Savior, risen from the dead, is a bad argument. And even if you cannot figure it out, because, you know, people throw things at us that whiz right by us, that it just catches us off guard, just remember that the power of a personal testimony against a bad argument is very great. And never be ashamed to say, well, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it. This is what I believe, and this is when I became a Christian, and this is the difference becoming a Christian has made in my life. Never underestimate the power of a personal testimony over a bad argument, and there are a lot of bad arguments out there. Well, the blind man gives his personal testimony, and it leads the Pharisees. It throws them on the defense. They said to him, how did he open your eyes? How did he open your eyes? Now, this is an ultimatum, folks. This is an ultimatum. Declare yourself now. How did he do it? And under all of this duress, our man does not yield. His resolve strengthens. He goes on the offensive. And with a, it's hilarious, it's great, with a show of innocence, as if he doesn't know what's going on, he begins to taunt them with questions. He says, I've told you already, and how he opened my eyes, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Uh, Why do you want to hear it again? Would you also like to be his disciples? Would you like that? (laughs) And they're really angry, and they revile him in his turn, and they say to him, you are his disciples. But we are disciples of Moses. Now hear that. He said to him, you are his disciples. And in point of fact, this is what our man was very quickly becoming. He was actually becoming Jesus' disciple. He may not have known it, exactly where this was headed, but that was where it was headed. And the next exchange really confirms it. The Pharisees are on the defensive. They say to him, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So we know this about Moses. We just don't know about Jesus. And our man picks up on their words. He says to them, why? This is such an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. Then he goes on. We do know something else. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Why, my word, he's turned into a crazy evangelist you know he's he's preaching a message he's been thinking this through it's been seeping into him he's realizing the implications more and more and more of what he had known about jesus he's begun to think about what it is that jesus has done in his life and he begins to realize that nobody thinks about it you know i've heard the bible since i was nowhere from genesis to now has anybody ever 
been healed of blindness, who was born blind. I mean, nobody could do this unless they're, unless they're from, from God. I mean, what a transformation in conviction. From having said just the facts, the man Jesus made mud, to he is a prophet, to never since the world has begun has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He is from God. And here's my point. Understand this. That that his commitment grew thanks to the adversity that he was under. He was being thrust from crisis to crisis. I love it in the Chinese language, the two kanji characters for crisis are the character for danger and opportunity. And that's what a crisis is. It's a danger and it's an opportunity. And he was being just thrust through crisis after crisis from trial to trial, from adversity to adversity, in which he was compelled to decide. He was forced to make a decision. Was he committed to the truth that he knows or was he not? Was he committed to it or was he not? And as Jesus said, to him, who has, to him who has shall more be given, that's exactly what was taking place with this man. The more he committed himself to what he knew, the more he grew in what he knew. The more he realized what was true of Jesus. To him who had was more given. Adversity and affliction antagonism these are Jesus classroom where he disciples us or disciplines us as Hebrews 12 points out or puts it discipline isn't necessarily punishment and it is not punishment in Hebrews 12 where it's it's a form of the word discipleship or discipling this is the classroom where Christ disciples us so that the truth becomes more and more a part of us, it becomes more and more a part of us as we are tested, as we are put in that position where we must commit ourselves, yea or nay, are we committed to what we believe or are we not? We're put under that test, and when we are commit, when we do commit, then what happens? Well, we come to actually know more truth, and we actually mature. And this is how it works in the Christian life. And granted, we might read into this chapter 9 of John's Gospel as far as we've gone. We might read into it and we might conclude that the Pharisees were behind this poor man's torments. I mean, they were at every scene. They were the they were the instigators. They were the they were uh, you know they were the primary cause. So you might say, well, this is a matter really of the Pharisees, what the Pharisees were doing. I mean, in the midst of all this, where was Jesus? I mean, he healed them, and Jesus disappeared. The man earlier said, I don't know where Jesus is. And for all our man knew, Jesus was completely unaware of what he was facing. And now it's reached the point in verse 34 where the Pharisees do cast him out, and he is rejected from the synagogue and from life 
with his people. Yeah, I know that sometimes, because I've heard this, as Christians, we want to see somebody come to Christ. But we realize that for them to come to Christ is going to be a very hard thing for them to do. Because for them to come to Christ, they are going to have to turn their back on what they have believed, on what their family insists that they believe. They're going to risk all kinds of, of, of losses. And, and we just wish it wasn't that hard for them to come to faith in Christ. And I want to say to you, in all honesty, it is hard for anyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It has to be hard to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what provokes us to reflect, to think, to go deeper, to ask ourselves those questions that have to be asked, to seek answers that we would never otherwise seek, but we do because we're under pressure and we're under duress. And a lot of that that affliction and that aggravation and that intense pressure that we feel as people are coming to Christ is actually internal to us. And it's actually being generated by the Holy Spirit. So you may not have a Pharisee on the outside of you putting you under pressure, but you are going to feel the pressure as the Holy Spirit convicts you, moves you, and the devil says, yeah, but what about, and did God really say, and what about this incident in your life, and what about that evil in the world, and what are you going to do with this? And you're under pressure. Because that's how we grow. That is how the Christian life works. Well, in fact, Jesus was very much aware of what the man was going through. It was all by his design anyway, which we'll come to, but Jesus knows exactly when to show up in a man's life once more, I mean very visibly, to come back and take up where he left off, and that is when the man is ready to receive the invitation to become his disciple. And that happens after all of this has taken place. Now Jesus shows up and says, do you want to be my my disciple? Do you believe in the Son of Man? I, I don't know who he is, Lord. You are looking. You are looking at him and he is speaking to you and our man says Lord I do believe and he worships him coming to faith in Christ coming to faith and becoming a Christian and then maturing in that faith is a consequence of adversity and crisis not adversity and crisis apart from the word of God and the work of the spirit but adversity and crisis is that classroom in which the word of God and the spirit are deeply, deeply at work. So understand clearly what I'm saying this morning. I think it's very, very important. I'm not saying that testing comes and this adversity comes as a consequence of our maturing, as a consequence of our growing in the faith. I'm saying that this testing and this adversity come in order to bring us to maturity. The maturity is a consequence of going through these testings, going through these adversities, going through these hardships and these difficulties and these tragedies. That's how it comes. Christianity has never, ever been 
leave your cross behind because I have carried it for you faith. It is a take up your cross and follow me faith. It is a join me in suffering faith. It is a Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered faith. As you learned at the men's conference yesterday, Christianity is not a make my problems go away faith. It is a help me see you and know you more clearly through this adversity faith. It is a be with me in this faith. It is a work through me. Be present with me. Teach me. Guide me and lead me faith. Read the Psalms. All these times David is saying, you delivered me from affliction. You delivered me from attack. You delivered me from this. You delivered me from that. It doesn't mean he did not go through those things. He went through all those things. But God had delivered him through those things. Let me take you back to the beginning of our passage. The very first verses. Jesus' disciples looked at the blind man. And they're thinking about this blind man, and they're wondering, born blind from birth, and boy, that's an awful thing. He's just like Job's friends looking at Job, and all that. It's an awful thing. So they asked him, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they want to understand his affliction. And so what they're naturally doing is they're thinking in terms of cause, the cause of this man's affliction. And in their understanding and their worldview and their perspective on life, the cause of something this bad happening to someone had to be sin. I mean, not just like sin in general, it's a fallen world, but I mean a sin or some sins by someone. And so the only thing they want to know is whose sin it was. Was it the parent's sin or was it the boy's sin or the child's sin, the son's sin. Those are, their, those are their options. And I'm going to say something, you know, honestly. Um, what's the first thing that happens when you find out something really adverse? Or when you find out a Christian that you know or somebody you know has suddenly fallen on extremely hard times and maybe they're the, someone you didn't like very well. Isn't the first thing we think about, especially when it ha- something happens to us, what did I do? You know, things obviously weren't good in Denmark, because if they were, this wouldn't have happened to me. Who sinned? What is the sin? What needs to change? We've done something terrible. And we almost feel, especially as Christians sometimes, because we're... <laughs> because we don't follow Christ as much as we think we do. We think, as, especially as Christians, in the sort of that old, te- not old, te- I'll say that, that Jewish way, of saying, well, there's got to be something wrong with me that this happened. And what is it? We blame ourselves. We begin to torment ourselves. We put ourselves through hell. It's the first thing we do. We assume that God is mad at us. We assume that things are not right. That's what we assume. But Jesus takes this question of theirs and he absolutely overturns it. He absolutely overturns their assumption. And he says to them, it is not this, that this man sinned or his parents, 
but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a very profound answer. He's saying if you want to understand why this man was born blind, don't look for what you think is the cause in the past or that led up to this thing. You need to think about it. If you want to understand why he was born blind, you have to think about God's purpose. God's purposes. What God has ahead. God has a purpose for everything, no matter what the cause. And frankly, very often, you know, the cause doesn't look anything like the purpose. (laughs) Think about the cause of Job's affliction. Think about disease or injury or or, or a failed uh, marriage. I mean, very often the causes of the hard things that happen in life, they have no resemblance to God's purpose at all. They're only means. They're not the end. And Jesus is saying, look, it's the end. You want to know why? Look at the end. You have to consider the purpose of God. God is all sovereign. He's completely sovereign. And look to the Lord to accomplish his purpose. And trust in his purpose that even if you cannot see it clearly, you will. And when you do see it clearly, you will not complain or object but you will worship just like the man who'd been born blind and had been blind all those many years. Because when you see God's purpose fulfilled, no matter what you went through, you will be wholly and completely healed. And you won't resent God for his purpose. You'll love God for his purpose. And so for the man who was born blind, God's purpose was to reveal his glory through his grace so that this man could see, which was the sign of what was happening, and further, that he could see Jesus for who he was. That was the substance. And become his his worshiper. I want to say very honestly to you just briefly that when we teach or when we think of Christianity as a, and, and our relationship with God is, is uh, you know, uh, he is our make this go away God or don't let this happen to me God, we really are doing a disservice. As a preacher, teacher, I would be doing a great disservice to you because when the adversity comes, you won't know what to do with it. And you won't understand it. But when the pattern of Scripture is so clear and so powerful, and the testimony is so consistent, we have to say what this is, what this faith is, and what this life is about. And so for the purpose of God, God's purpose to see, to make his glory known through his works, The man was born blind. And for that purpose, Jesus healed him with mud made from spit. Now, how could that contribute? 
And for that purpose, all the questionings and the interrogations and the pressures and the intimidations and the threats followed. And for that purpose, he was put out of the synagogue. And for that purpose, then, when he was fully prepared, Jesus extended to him the invitation to believe, and he did. And he worshipped, and he was fully satisfied. And I'm sure that, that for that purpose, God's purpose of glorifying himself In and through this man, his life was never the same. I am sure that he faced other adversities. I don't think the Pharisees suddenly loved him when he formally became a disciple of Jesus. I don't think he was welcomed back into the synagogue. I think he faced other pressures. I think he had to deal with whiny, immature parents. I think he had to deal with all kinds of things. I have no doubt that he did. All for God's purpose in his life. So that at the end, he could look back and he would be able to testify and by faith would be able to know even in the present moment that God causes all things to work together for my good through Christ. Why? Because this is God's purpose for my life. God has a purpose for me that's bigger than that. And that purpose is a good purpose, no matter what that cause looks like, no matter how vile or wrong it is. And I'm not going to confuse the causes with the purpose. I'm not going to confuse that. I'm not going to lose sight of the sovereign goodness of a holy God. You know what uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 27, verse 10 And I think the blind man must really have taken this one to heart probably at some point. Though my father and my mother forsake me. I mean, what can be worse than that? The Lord will take me in. What can be better than that? Though my father and my mother may forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Though this, like the worst thing imaginable, may happen to me, the Lord will take me in. God has this this purpose. And everything will contribute to his purpose. It's true of you and it's true of me. It's true of you and it's true of me. We tend to we tend to pity people who are in the classroom where Jesus is teaching when we realize they're in the classroom. During the men's conference yesterday I turned to some guys at the table. I met uh, Peters, I think, and James Key were on either side of me too brothers-in-law. I'll never do that again. Anyway, um, so I turned to them and I said uh, to the effect of the table, you know, that I look at the men in this room, and because I've been here so long, and I know everybody, for most of the men, I realize that they are going through hell. I realize that they are suffering on deep levels in many, many different ways. So we say, well, we tend to pity those who we know are suffering. You know, (laughs) you don't have enough pity. If pity was the response for you to give, you don't have enough pity. You just don't. There's just too much suffering. There's too much hardship and pain. No. We need to understand when people are in the classroom and Jesus is the teacher, that they are where he wants them to be. And we need to be there to love them. Not with glib answers, talking about drawing from causes, this is why this happened. 
This wouldn't have happened if. This might not have happened if. No, 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 no. We're there to love them. And oftentimes, the best way to love people in the midst of those afflictions is with our silence. And what that really means isn't with our silence. It means with our mere presence with them as human flesh. We love them as we share assurances, when we share gracious words. We love them and help them along as we point them to Christ and the certainty of his promises and his great and grand purpose, which is for everyone who has ever loved him, which they will know. So if you're saying to me, well, Kurt, are you saying? You tell people, well, the, the reason you're going through this is because God has this great, uh, a greater purpose for you. You're going to know him better as a result of that. And are you, saying that that is the, uh, are you saying that that is the way out of their suffering? And my answer is, no, I'm not saying that is the way out of their suffering. I am saying that that is the light at the entrance to their way out of their suffering. And it's for us to share. It's for us to share. I've told you the story, and uh, I'll cl- close with this very quickly, but when our dear sister Sue Stopmeister died because she was murdered, as many of you know, a number of years ago, um, and I was with Henry, her husband, and we were in the hospital, and we were in the room uh, where she was laid. And he asked me, he asked me, you know, is this God's plan? And I said to him, we, we know and we have to hold on to this that nothing happens apart from his sovereign will and that he has a purpose in everything. And then it was 12 or 14 years later, whatever it was, three, four, five years ago when he came to me and he said to me, Kurt, those words that you spoke to me when I was with my wife are the words that sustain me. Now, I didn't say them in a glib way, but what I added to him was that if we don't, if we, if we let go of that, we have nothing. We have nothing. And that's why God gives it to us. So we have what we need. There is a light at the entrance to the way out. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. And I pray that you would be greatly at work in our hearts and lives, having your way with us. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love your word. I love it. I love how it corrects the lies, the falsehoods, the distortions about you, about about me, about our humanity, about our world. I love you how it teaches us uh, about how good you are. Um, I, I, just, I just love you. And I ask you to be at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.